from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower. This week in Boise, Idaho, on this week's edition, the world's biggest electric vehicle company you've never heard of, how the beauty and personal care products industry is enhancing sustainability, the making of a sustainable French fry, and water wisdom from Intel. It's potatoes and chips this week on 350. May 18th, 2018. Welcome to Green Biz 350. Joining me is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. I am still laughing over the potatoes and chips line. <laughs> um, Idaho! You're in Idaho. I've never been to Idaho. Is it pretty? Um, you know, Boise is a nice little town. It's uh, manageable. It's, it's, it's very clean and nice. And um, uh, I, I really I, I like the vibe here. Um, so it's been it's been a great few days here, and uh, we've had a great experience around French fries. What about French fries? That, by the way, one of my favorite food groups. So I, I'm I'm jealous. Yeah, I'm 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 right with you on that one. Um, you know, any combination of potatoes, salt, and grease is very high on my list. Um, so Boise is the headquarters for the J.R. Simplot Company. That's a company that's about uh, 80 years old, or 90 years old, uh, founded in 1929 by a 20-year-old named John Richard Simplot, who started serving the military dehydrated onions and potatoes during World War II, and they became just this massive, uh, lar- one of the largest uh, potato growers and processors uh, in the world. If you've ever eaten a McDonald's French fry or hash browns or or that and probably any of a number of, of, of restaurants and fast food companies, you've eaten a Simplot product. And they also produce fertilizers uh, along the supply chain, so they're very uh, vertically integrated. Um, interesting company, uh, privately held. We'll talk a little bit later in the program with Brandy Wilson, who's their relatively new year old uh, sustain- corporate sustainability director. Um, and they're, you know, like a lot of companies that are fairly new to the sustainability scene and also privately held, you know, they're kind of jumping in with both feet. Well, so Joel, I'm hearing a little bit of a, a, something like a tickle in your in your throat. I, I'm sorry you seem to be feeling poorly. Well, I actually feel great, except my voice is uh, recuperating from uh, too many airline flights. Right. Well, we, we missed you here on the podcast. Um, so, and I, and I have to know, because we haven't really talked about it, um, Tell me about the exciting things you did on your vacation. Well, yes, I took a real live two-and-a-half-week vacation. My wife and I went to uh, Morocco for about uh, 12 of those days and then spent a few days on either side in either Rome or Paris. This is sort of gateways to uh, to Europe and northern Africa. And yeah, but Morocco was the centerpiece, and it was, uh, it was really, really interesting, a fascinating country. Um, amazing food, uh, although <laughs> something to be said for Italy and France as well. So I'm uh, trying to work those pounds off. Uh, but really just sort of seeing what, what you know, life is like in Northern Africa and both in the cities and up in the mountains, in the Atlas Mountains. And it was really a, a terrific trip. I, I have to ask, did you need to speak French? Because I've, I've been thinking about going there and um, 
You know, how easy is it to be a tourist there? Um, French helps. English is is pretty good. Uh, French is the would be the number two. Um, there's a lot of people who you know you, you'll get further by you know saying bonjour and merci than than anything in English. Um, but it was fairly easy to find people to uh, speak one or the other. I'm not a by any stretch a fluent French speaker, but I know enough to you know keep out of trouble and find the bathroom in in Paris. Um, but French, yeah, does definitely come in handy. Well, so I'm excited. I have to put that on my list. Um, yeah, for mm -hmm, sure. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just curious: Are you staying put for a while, or do you have any other travels coming up? Well, this is GBEN month, a month when we have a three uh, Green Biz Executive Network meetings. I missed the first one in Atlanta because of my, my travels. I'm here in Boise this week, and uh, next week I'll be in Chicago at United Airlines uh, headquarters in the Willis Tower, formerly Sears Tower in downtown. Uh, and then while I'm there, I'll also be keynoting an event in Milwaukee for Johnson Controls. And then I'm back for at least a few weeks until we all head off to Hawaii for Verge Hawaii. How about you, Heather? Are you sitting still or running around? Well, I'm actually heading off to my uh, my regional competition for my chorus. I, I, those of you who know me a little bit better than just my byline, uh, I'm an acapella singer, and so I'll be running off this weekend for uh, uh a competition <laughs> with my quartet and my chorus. So, um, yeah, but otherwise, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to Hawaii. Uh, my mother lives on the big island, and um, so Ooh, I'm, how I'm she, actually kind of... How's yeah, she doing so, with the volcano? Is she impacted Well, so, yeah, um, it's interesting. She, you know, I don't know if people realize this, but um, the Kilauea is, is active, right? But actually, there's like, there's five volcanoes on the island in total, and she doesn't live anywhere near that one. She lives near Hualalai, um, which is on the other side over near Kona. And um, technically speaking, it's active. Um, but, you know, she's very safe. I, I appreciate you asking. And um, she keeps posting pictures of, because, uh, of course, everyone's asking. Everyone's freaking out. Um, and uh, uh, But she is very safe. She gets what they call the VOG, the, the volcanic um, sort of fog. But... Uh, so far, so good. Just a lot of earthquakes. The earthquakes have been unsettling. So, but thank you for asking. Yeah, I bet. I had an opportunity a number of years ago to take a helicopter ride over the Big Island and over Kilauea, and and just to see what it spews on a normal day, just the basic activity and watching the the uh, lava come out and run down into the Pacific Ocean is just really amazing. And some of the footage I've seen um, over the past week or so from what's going on there now is just kind of mind-blowing. Um, another tip of the hat to, uh, in, in the few days after Mother's Day, to Mother Earth and the incredible power she's offering. And so I'm, I'm in awe of that and, and, and hope, wish your mom the best. Yeah, thank you. So, and with that, um, let's move over to the Week in Review. So, Heather, I love this this first piece about a company called BYD, which, as we <laughs> said, is kind of becoming a BFD. Um, and um, talk a little bit about what this company is doing and why we're writing about it. So I love this company too, and um, and I, I want to uh, give a hat tip to our um, transportation writer, senior writer, and, and analyst Katie Fehrenbacher. So BYD is. Uh, 
probably the biggest uh, electric vehicle company that, that the American market has never heard of. Um, it is the largest um, uh, Chinese manufacturer of, of electric vehicles and particularly the larger vehicles. So they're known for um, their work on buses and, um, and now more so on light and medium heavy, medium and heavy duty trucks. Um, so, you know, the, the thing that's interesting, um, she's got some good statistics in her story from Bloomberg New Energy Finance. The company actually delivered 108,956 EVs last year. So, and, you know, Tesla's like third behind, behind them and BNF, BMW is number four. And the reason that, that more of us here in the United States don't know about them is because the majority of those sales have been in um, China um, last and but you know and that's in the remarkably larger market for for electric vehicles and we, we here in the United States I think we are behind the times on on this transition for, for a variety of reasons right because everything is at sort of the state level or the city level and so forth but BYD is really benefiting from a couple of things. Number one is the the Chinese um, incentives, right? So they're incented, to, uh, they're being um, given money to help build them. So there's a lot of manufacturing going on, as well as the, the transportation policy there in China has been pointing towards electric. You know, they've got this sort of mandate that will be working out diesel buses and working them out of the urban transit systems and and really supporting those. And so. You know, BYD, one of its biggest advantages is that it is a huge battery manufacturer and um, its ability to vertically integrate those batteries into their vehicles is, I think, one of their big advantages. So definitely a player to watch. They have a, um, a U.S. division that is run by a woman, um, Stella Lee, I believe her last name is pronounced, and we're watching them closely. So far, they've sold... About 722 electric buses in the United States. Um, they're they're planning some U.S. manufacturing, right? So I think um, I love this story, uh, and and uh, some of the comments have been very uh, enlightening because you know they're like, well, how? You, of course we know you you should know about BYD, and um, again, it's another example of how China is absolutely number one. Um, you know. A huge market for electric vehicles, but also number two, a huge technology influence there. And well, one of the things that's interesting about them is, is really how they're competing head to head with Tesla. Um, you know, BYD, which has been around since 1995, and they started uh, as as a manufacturer of, of rechargeable uh, batteries and built the company around that. And by the way, BYD stands for Build Your Dream. That's interesting for a Chinese company to sort of take an American acronym. Um, I don't know how they say it, if they say it any differently in, in Chinese, but that's the American translation. Um, and they have a, just, just like Tesla recently opened a factory in Shanghai, or in, around Shanghai, BYD has a factory in Lancaster, California, down south, southern part of the state. And so it's this real, it going to be this real battle, not just with Tesla, but with uh, Proterra, which is an American-born uh, electric bus company, uh, going head to head with BYD and the for the municipal bus and mass transit market, um, really an interesting company to watch and 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 who wins and loses or every everybody wins and hopefully nobody loses is I think just going to be one of the interesting stories to watch and 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 by the way, just like uh, again like Tesla is moving towards you know semi trucks and pickup trucks and other things BYD also makes you know besides 
cars and buses, they make trucks, forklifts, and uh, another a number of other things, including mobile phone batteries. So this truly is uh, a fairly unknown company in the United States that's going to be a big player, definitely one to watch. So the second story that we'd love to tout this week is mine. <laughs> uh, uh, it's a it's a it's a issue we've been following for a while. Um, the, the the title for those of you who want to go read up afterwards is Makeover Artists: How the Beauty and Personal Care Industry Enhanced Its Sustainability. And this is the the chronicle, if you will, of the the summit and the group, the working group um, that was established and and, and catalyzed about. Mm, Three three and a half years ago, by um, Target and Walmart. So the the backstory here is that um, the two companies were obviously talking about what what we will um, sort of euphemistically call ingredients of concern, right? So things in cosmetic and personal care products that you're putting on your skin, um, on your body, associating with um, you know human biology that could be uh, toxic. So. This has obviously been a, an issue for years, but the two companies decided in that time frame, in the late um, 2014, I believe it was, that, you know what, there was so much um, disparate and, and unconnected work going on that they were going to call a summit, um, not just for retailers, but um, for the manufacturers of these products and also for the chemicals um, and preservatives companies that, uh, that, that contribute to this industry. So after that summit, the Sustainability Consortium and the Forum for the Future uh, basically started a working group. And uh, currently it represents 18 um, industry stakeholders, including the original two retailers. And they have just uh, this month published what, what they've, they term sort of a, a, a rating system for uh, BPC products, so beauty and personal care products. The idea is that retailers can use this sort of as a, a way of of um, organizing their questionnaires and making their questions more, um, make, make sure that the language is the same, that they're covering the same areas. There are 32 KPIs in all, key performance indicators, that are part of the, uh, the suggestions that are, that are made. And they're, they're in four different areas. So packaging, right, um, and, and, and what, what it goes into putting that product on the shelf. Disclosure, how, how um, on the packaging, you talk about the different chemicals or ingredients that might be inside, the, the things that could affect a, a human. And speaking of which, health is one of the factors that they're, that they're going to use. Um, and supply chain in the environment, so what the supply chain practices are. So we talk a lot about a collaboration, but um, this is just far deeper than, than the sort of t- traditional um, partnerships or working groups that, that we've seen. Um, and, it, and it really represents a pretty... Um, amazing and an open effort yeah i think that's that pre-competitive uh, part of that is is really interesting and important and it's something we actually we've been talking about this week at the green biz executive network meeting here in boise um about what it, it takes for companies to come together and uh, we were talking about it actually in the fast food industry looking at uh, you know how some of the big ones are doing things but there's some of the others not quite as big ones that are doing less and and are they just free riders, and why aren't they participating? And once one of the companies says this is non-competitive, we should be pre-competitive. We could just work on this stuff together and get the scale. While some of the other companies say, "Oh no, we're not going. We're competing with you. We can't collaborate." So it's really terrific when uh, uh, industry sector 
like beauty and personal care products can take this on and successfully and bring in you know not just the the founding companies um, you name, but also uh, Bird's Bees, which is part of Clorox and Colgate, and some of the suppliers, the chemical companies like Eastman Chemical and Henkel over in Dusseldorf, Germany, and Procter and Gamble and Unilever, the big guys, and and so that's I think really an important thing, and it is one of those areas where you really can reach consumers because you know we talk about uh, the impacts of in on and around your body, and in, in the sense that the most important things that people care about as consumers is stuff that goes in your body. Next of is sort of on or around, around on your body, like personal care products. And then things you bring into your home or others is sort of the third. So this is really an important era, area and a really interesting way to um, engage consumers who, you know, are hard to engage. So um, hats off to uh, Sally Uren at Forum for the Future and her terrific team. And this and and uh, the sustainability court consortium, because I think this is really hard work and really important work. Yeah, and it should be um, intriguing to see who who joins, right? So one of the threads that um, that came out sort of through my interviews, and there's but by the way, I interviewed a lot more people than I could quote, um, was that you know now it's time to get others involved. Um, the, the manufacturers, of course, would love to see. The, the questions to be more consistent. It's not that they don't want to, um, you know, work with with each retailer sort of on their you know on their own standing, but but it helps a lot. And both Burt's Bees and and Seventh Generation told me that this would definitely you know they'll, they'll definitely have to make some changes to how they collect information, but that it'll be ultimately um, you know a lot easier for them to keep track of this and to to be disclosing how what they're doing and and that it does allow for the differentiation that the, the manufacturers really wanted to see out of this. So, you, you know, they're doing things that are consistent, but they're also allowed to differentiate. So I'm going to watch who joins. One of the longest standing monthly columns on greenbiz.com is Liquid Assets which explores ways in which companies can manage water-related risks in an increasingly water-constrained world. The author is Will Sarney, a thought leader and former Deloitte consulting practice leader who now runs his own company in Colorado called Water Foundry. Will has not one but two books out this spring. The first is called Water Stewardship and Business Value, Creating Abundance from Scarcity. The second title is Creating 21st Century Abundance Through Public Policy Innovation, Moving Beyond Business as Usual. Okay, Will, you're obviously a, <laughs> a glutton for content. Thank you for joining us today to talk about your, your, um, your books. Uh, why two of them? <laughs> That's a great question. And you're not the first. I doubt you'll be the last person to ask me that question. Well, it, it wasn't by design. Uh, Actually, one of the books uh, just dragged on a little bit longer than I had planned or we had planned, and they just came out about a month apart from each other. So uh, what was an accident, I think, actually worked out quite well in terms of amplifying a uh, supporting message around abundance. So uh, I wish I could tell you that it was planned, but it, it really wasn't. But I think the outcome was, uh, was good. 
So we're, they're obviously related. We'll get to that in a moment. They're, all, uh, they're both also co-authored. So tell us a little bit about your co-authors. Sure. So uh, one of the co-authors is uh, Greg Koch, uh, which is the book on uh, creating uh, 21st century abundance through public policy innovation. And he it was the former senior director for global water stewardship at the Coca-Cola Company. He is now a water resource management consultant with uh, KH2O Group Advisors. And the uh, other co-author with the book on water stewardship and business value creating abundance from scarcity is David Grant, who is head of sustainable development at AB InBev. Africa, both uh, really amazing co-authors and thought leaders uh, in the world of water and, and very well-grounded and well-versed on uh, corporate water strategy initiatives. So uh, it was good for me that they uh, both signed up to uh, to write books. Great. Right. So, I, I, yeah, and, and I, that's great, too, that that corporate lens is there. That's really um, important for our audience, obviously. And I noticed there's a, a one of the words in the t- in both titles, um, which intrigued me, abundance. So I've got to ask you, define your concept of <laughs> abundance. Sure. Uh, so I, I'm going to go back to uh, how fortunate I am in that uh, in mid-2016, I uh, worked with a, uh, a team uh, as part of an XPRIZE uh, competition and what that was, uh, we were working on a safe drinking water prize sponsored by Clorox Brita, and the the goal was to develop a prize concept, not a solution, but build a, a prize construct to address universal access to safe drinking water. And I was exposed and introduced to Peter Diamandis, the founder of XPRIZE, uh, who had authored a book titled Abundance. And uh, and actually, the title is Abundance, the Future is Better Than You Think. And it really struck me that he has a different way of looking at the world. And in the world of water, we tend to frame everything as a risk issue, whether it's water scarcity or poor water quality, and really don't focus, in my view, enough on how do we create abundance? How do we leverage uh, innovation and technology and public policy to really create abundance? And that's not to imply waste. It's really to have a laser focus on abandoning business as usual and driving innovation so we can create universal access to safe drinking water, uh, as an example. So, uh, it, it, it just really resonated with me and uh, got me to think about, well, you know, I'm writing this book with David Grant on water stewardship and how do we, how do we push the boundaries of water stewardship and change the narrative? Because, as you know, words matter in terms of engaging with uh, stakeholders that are not typically engaged on a particular topic. Well, you, you've talked about water stewardship for, for a long time. So... How does this whole concept go beyond that? And and you know, like, let's get let's get frank. What's the business opportunity, right? So <laughs> companies aren't in this for their own good. I mean, and they're in, in there for good, but they're also in it for their profit. So, like, what's the business opportunity here? Great question. So, in my view, our view, 
there is a broader value proposition that goes beyond water stewardship. And, you know, when we think about water stewardship and what companies do and have been doing, it's, it's really around their value chain. So the, the good news is that more and more companies are engaging with their upstream supply chain. They are taking initiatives uh, within their own operations, their own four walls. They are engaging with consumers, customers, uh, their stakeholders uh, on the product side of their value chain and doing more at the watershed level. And there's you know a number of examples of that. What what we really strove to do, uh, we're striving to do, is really get them to think more broadly. So, um, you know, for a company, think about what are the new products and services that you could bring into the marketplace? Uh, how can you influence innovation and funding and financing to where you are having a very positive impact on the solution and also driving value for your company by creating new revenue streams, more profitable revenue streams, and, uh, you know, addressing an issue that is critical for business growth and economic development and social well-being. So it, it's really that uh, drive to really open up the possibilities to businesses and think about what's my global footprint? What are my skill sets? Is it in marketing, communications? Well, how does a company like that be part of the solution and uh, create brand value for themselves? So that that's really what this is about. It's not about abandoning water stewardship and, and the frameworks that are out there. It's really opening up the possibilities uh, for companies uh, to be part of uh, creating abundance. And you mentioned the XPRIZE earlier, and that's a, obviously a, something focused on technical and technology innovation, but what other sorts of innovations are required to get us to move to this new place? Sure, and, and you really see that in the book with Greg Koch, where we focused on public policy innovation. And you know, historically, that's not something that would come to mind for me uh, first, but, uh, you know, Greg is uh, very well versed in terms of what's happening in the public policy arena through some of the work that he did with the 2030 Water Resources Group. So, you know, when we think about innovation, think about innovation and partnerships, uh, you know, cross-industry sector collaboration, uh, competitors collaborating in a pre-competitive space. Uh, the 2030 Water Resources Group framework is a way to bring in NGOs and, and competitors uh, in the public sector to drive public policy innovation. Uh, but also think more broadly, think about innovation in, in funding and financing, some of the work that OECD is doing and University of Oxford on blended finance. Uh, think about innovation in business models. So how do we create business models that are attractive to the water utility sector that uh, it doesn't have a lot of money to spend on innovation typically? And then, of course, the more traditional, you know, think about technology innovation, uh, you know, more broadly and some of the things that are happening in the digital uh, world right now. One final question. You know, just what's the call to action? <laughs> 
the call to action is abandon business as usual. Uh, think about what business as usual is doing to us in the public and private sector and, and on the social and uh, ecosystem side and not start with a blank sheet of paper, but really open it up in terms of what is possible or, uh, as they say, the art of possible, art of the possible. What, what can we do if we really think more broadly about innovation and our role in solving uh, water-related risks and, and the associated impacts? So it's uh, abandoned business as usual because it's killing us and uh, be creative. Well, Will, it's time to give your fingers a rest. Thank you for joining <laughs> us here on Green Biz 350. Appreciate it, and it's good to always good to talk to you. Well, thanks so much for the opportunity. I appreciate it. The semiconductor manufacturing process uses a staggering amount of water to wash impurities off the chips and wafers and memory and other electronic components that go into powering the digital economy. Tech giant Intel uses an estimated 10 billion gallons of water across its operations annually, but that number could actually be a lot worse. It has spent more than two decades on innovations and efficiency measures. Now it's focusing on a larger goal. It's on a mission to restore 100% of its water use by 2025. What exactly does that mean? I spoke with Todd Brady, Intel's Director of Global Public Affairs and Sustainability, about the restoration target. During our wide-ranging and lengthy interview, we also discussed some of the company's latest efficiency and reclamation projects, why more municipalities need better gray water policies, and why there's plenty more room for innovation when it comes to water technology. Here are some highlights from our interview. I joined Intel back in 1995. And back at that time, my recollection is to make ultra pure water, it took about two gallons of regular water, if you will, you know, water coming out of the tap from the city, uh, to make one gallon of ultra pure water. So our efficiency was about 50%. So about half the water coming in would turn into one gallon of, of water that we could actually use in our manufacturing process. You fast forward to today, and our efficiency is over 90%. So it's about 1.1 gallon of water to every gallon of water that's coming in. So we've made great strides in our ability to be much more efficient in the way that we make ultra-pure water, which is then used in our manufacturing process. And, and then, you know, we've, we've also done all of the standard things that you would think about in terms of uh, companies conserving water from low-flow fixtures to uh, we've done condensate capture, uh, from you know air conditioning units, HVAC units, uh, we've done uh, rainwater capture at some of our sites that get a lot of rain, um, and then just uh, uh, irrigation efficiencies, all, all those types of things. And as we started to look at you know what's next, so um, you know we can continue down this path, but the the incremental improvements are tougher and tougher to get. So we and so. As we were looking at this restoration goal, we said, okay, let, wait a minute, let's take a step back and look at the big picture. And from uh, from the community's perspective, what do they see? Well, for every gallon of water that we use, how much are we sending back to the community? 
Um, so, so one of the good things about our use of water is it's not consumptive. We, we, we don't, uh, water doesn't end up in part, as part of our, our product. It's not consumed in our process. Uh, and so what we found as, as we did our water balance was that roughly for every gallon of water that we used, we were sending back 0 0.75, 0 0.8 in that range. So, so 75 to 80 to 85 percent, depending on where we were located. Um, we sent back to the municipality or the community in which we were operating. Uh, and the losses that we had were primarily due to evaporative losses um, during the, our process of using water. And so when we looked at that, we said, okay, well, is there a way to restore those evaporative losses back to the community? And we went through engineering analysis and what could we do to reduce the amount of evaporative losses and, and what would that cost and, and how, you know, what technology is out there. And what we, what we quickly found out was that it would be impossible for us alone by ourselves to restore 100% of the water back to the community because of these evaporative losses. And so in, instead we started looking around at, at what, um, what were best practices in other industries. And uh, we looked at, at uh, the beverage industry and a couple of other industries and saw some innovative approaches that they were taking and working with their local community to uh, replenish water, restore water back to local uh, water sources. And so uh, we looked at that and found that um, that was a viable method for us to be able to partner with the communities where we operate to restore an, uh, a volume of water that's equivalent to the water that's lost uh, during our manufacturing process, again, mostly due to evaporative losses. And so uh, from that then, we came up with this goal that by the year 2025, we want to restore 100% of the water that we use. And the way that we'll do that is both through continuing the work we've been doing for a couple of decades around uh, being much more water efficient, but then adding to that uh, projects in partnership with our local community, with NGOs, nonprofits, to restore water back to those watersheds from which we're pulling water for our manufacturing operations. And so taking that bigger picture view then, we can uh, make the community whole. For every gallon of water that we bring in, we can send the gallon back to the community either through uh, work that we're doing inside of Intel or work that we're doing with the community to, re to put more water back into local streams and rivers and, and watersheds. And we thought it was important that if we were going to restore water to the watershed that's here in Arizona, that we weren't doing a project, say, in Florida. Um, that even though that would help the community in Florida, it wouldn't help the community in the Phoenix area where we're operating and using water. And so we wanted to make sure that those projects were done in areas that connected to the local watershed. Now, that can be, and again, we, we use the term watershed because uh, those watersheds can be vast. Um, so, so, for example, one of the first projects we funded um, in Arizona was actually along the uh, Arizona... Utah border along the Colorado River, because the Colorado River is a primary source of water in the Phoenix area. And so going upstream, um, we, we funded a project with an agricultural group whereby um, 
we help fund a crop conversion where they would stop uh, growing a crop that used a lot of water. They're now um, converting their land from that crop to uh, grazing and uh, using water for a a, uh, a low water uh, grass, which uh, cattle can use. And then we also help fund an upgrade of their irrigation system so that it was much more efficient and not losing as much water and um, and more efficiently utilizing the water there on the ranch, on the farm. And th again, that was actually in the state of Utah, but it's along the Colorado River, which feeds into Arizona and is the lifeblood for the water that we use in the state. If you were to go to our uh, Ronler Acres campus, which is just outside of Portland, um, it's a big, big sprawling manufacturing campus. Uh, we have there in Oregon now, um, around 20,000 employees. And um, what you would see if you drive by that campus is a lot of construction activity. And a lot of that construction activity is related to a big um, water reclaim facility that we're building. And uh, once complete, that will allow us to reclaim another roughly billion gallons of water a year from that facility. So that allow us to take the water out of the, the manufacturing process, the water's coming out of that manufacturing process, clean it to a state that it can be reused in a variety of different reuse applications. That's a, that's a major investment bias. And the way that it works at Intel is that's our R&D campus, our research and development campus. And so as we prove that technologies can work there, then we typically follow a process called copy exactly, where then we replicate that around the world. So we're very excited to see the outcome of, uh, of that project. We think it will be successful, and, and then what we can learn from it and replicate it around the world. So that investment is continuing, um, and, and we're fully committed to continuing to try to figure out how we can better utilize our water in our own operations. We think that's the foundation. If we don't do that, the, the rest of these things honestly don't matter. Um, but uh, having done that and having established that foundation, we then said, could we do more? And that's what led to the idea of doing these water restoration projects in the community, which uh, could even broaden our impact and restore more water back to local watersheds. So one of the things that we've run into over the years is the ability to, to use gray water. Uh, we use uh, hundreds of millions of gallons of gray water in our facility in Arizona. That was done through careful planning with the municipality. Uh, they've, they've done an excellent job of creating a, a, a gray use stream that not only we can use, but other industrial partners can use. I contrast this, and I won't call out any particular um, you know, state or, or location, but I contrast this with other locations where we have no access to gray water. We'd love to use gray water, but we don't have access to it. Um, and it becomes cost prohibitive after the fact to try to run a line uh, to one of our facilities to use the gray water. There's an opportunity, I think, um, for industry to work together with local municipalities, water providers, uh, utility providers, to think more strategically about how we use water and to set up that infrastructure and setting that at, uh, up, up front uh, can really be beneficial uh, in a number of ways in terms of reusing water, particularly gray water that can be shared either across industry or um, in, in the case in, in Arizona, we're actually taking gray water, which is uh, domestic reuse water, so homes, uh, water that's from homes 
and whatnot that's that's then treated to reuse standards, and then we use that in our facility. So I think there's a lot more of that that we could potentially do by thinking more strategically and working together up front. One of the things I I learned maybe 10 years ago, um, and this relates to water and uh, energy utilities in general, we started a, a program uh, maybe a decade ago where we said, you know, we think there's some good ideas out there to make us more efficient in our use of utilities, whether that's water, energy, or natural gas. And um, so I remember at the time we set aside a million dollars and said, let's see what our engineers can come up with. The ideas that are the best ideas that have the best return on investment will fund those. And um, And I honestly thought within a year or two we would run out of ideas. Uh, fast forward 10 years later, uh, my budget this year is $30 million. It has been $30 million for the past three or four years. And we continue to find projects that save utilities, that make us more efficient, that have a return on investment of five years or less. So I, I guess one of the, um, from a strict business standpoint, one of my you know, recommendations to those working in the sustainability space who are trying to drive efficiencies and lower footprints, whether that's water, carbon, whatnot, is the opportunities are out there. Uh, you may think they're not. You may you may think you're as efficient as you as you can possibly be, but you'll be surprised uh, what you can find as you turn people loose, give them a challenge, give them a goal, give them a target, and uh, and turn them loose and allow them to innovate. And I've always been amazed at. Um, at all of the, the new ideas that come forward. And as I said, over and over again, they have a positive return on investment. They simply make good business sense. As I said at the top of the show, I'm here this week in Boise, Idaho, at the headquarters of J.R. Simplot. And I wanted to bring into the conversation the company's corporate sustainability director, Brandy Wilson. Hey, Brandy. Hey, Joel, how are you? Well, except for the voice, I'm doing okay. So you joined Simplot a year ago. Uh, you, we knew you at your previous employer. Tell me why you came over to Simplot. What was the opportunity you saw? The opportunity for me at JR Simplot was really to knit together a new corporate strategy for a company that's been doing a lot of good things in sustainability across the board, but hasn't really put all the pieces together. And for me, also the opportunity to work in agriculture is huge because I think in terms of water use, energy use, all of those things, how we're going to feed the world going forward, agriculture is really where it's at. So Simplot is a privately held company. What are the implications of that for sustainability? Well, I think one of the greatest things about being a privately held company is that we can really take the reins and chart our own course in terms of sustainability. So we can look at what our impacts are in this vertically integrated agribusiness company, see where it makes the most sense for us to do some innovative sustainability work and go in that direction. Can you give me an example of some of that innovative sustainability work? Some of the innovative sustainability work, a really good example of that is that we've done a masterful job of addressing water recycling and water use in our potato processing facilities. At the same time, we've done some amazing innovative work around water treatment and uh, water discharge for our mining and manufacturing sites. So if we start to look at it from a corporate strategic perspective around what does what does the JR Simplot company do around water and what could we be doing in water and how could we uh, and how we could be acting in those watersheds, I think that's just an amazing um, example of where we could innovate and take things from a local level to a truly global level. 
I think there's a lot of room to grow in potato. And there's um, opportunity to really look at it from a supply chain perspective. So we've kind of perfected the supply chain from, um, from the farm through the processing plant in terms of food waste, for example. I think we're like 97 or 98% efficient. But there's still gains to be made in terms of how the potatoes are grown, how we interact with, with those growers, what we can do to make sure that the growers are economically sustainable, as well as being able to advance on some of the environmental things that people more typically think about in sustainability in terms of fertilizer use and, and all of those other inputs. One of the things we got to do this week was to tour your LEED Gold Certified French Fry Factory. I'm guessing it's the only LEED Certified French Fry Factory in the world. Why is that significant for Simplot? The significance of this lead gold facility, which if I can just divert for just a second and say the only thing that could make that place more magical is if we had Oompa Loompas, and that's because I've always loved French fries, and oh my gosh, seeing them become French fries is a magical, magical process to me. Um, it's very automated. We reuse a ton of the water in there. We are very energy efficient, and I think what this does is it really sets a standard for what food processing can look like, not just in potato, but much more broadly than that. So what's next? What are you excited about? What I'm really excited about is the opportunity to work across Simplot's entire value chain to really identify some good projects with our customers and other people that we're working with to, um, to figure out how we can improve things for sustainability. Can you give me an example of where you see the biggest opportunities? A good example of that is some of the work that we're doing, um, both our own internal scientists, um, universities, and other partners that we're working with to do some research into what makes a really great potato. And more than that, what makes a really great sustainable potato. So how can we change um, the amount of inputs that are required to grow a potato? How can we make potatoes themselves more resilient? And how do we achieve that with our partners in the supply chain? Well, thanks for hosting, and thanks for the great tour. Brandy Wilson is Director of Corporate Sustainability at J.R. Simplot. Thanks, Brandy. Thank you, Joel. It's great to have you. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go, as always, to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization stories and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're there, look for a link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing director. Before we go, I want to give a warm healing shout out to our colleague Shauna Rappaport, who's recuperating from a bike riding accident with, believe it or not, a semi-truck. She's uh, doing okay. She's on the mend, and we wish her Godspeed in her recovery. We're going to be off next week in honor of Memorial Day here in the USA, but we'll be back, as I will my voice, on June 2nd for another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>